Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Good morning, Candeo Church. How are we doing? Awesome. It's great to be with you this morning. I'm battling a little bit of uh, sickness, allergies. That's a thing. Anybody else? That like white cotton ball stuff is doing me in, but uh, it's great to be with this morning. Uh, Some of the best wedding day advice I received kind of in the days leading up to our wedding day was a friend of mine told me, he said, hey, make sure you force yourself to pause and take mental photos. And it, it shocked me. I mean, like all the months and days of planning for that one day, it was wild to me how past, like, like, like fast it was moving by. And so some of the, the mental images I have still to this day, years later, they haven't faded at all. Uh, I, I think of uh, my, my friends and I, we had for that summer kind of picked up the game of like street hockey and kind of made that our thing. So I remember even though it was 103 degrees out, going out to the parking lot while the ladies were taking pictures, I think we had done our job. Like the guys, like we had all done our jobs. So we felt like we could get sweaty for a while and played some street hockey. I remember that. I remember Mitch sticking his head into a freezer to try to cool off before the ceremony. Remember that? Uh, I remember uh, I remember taking my mother-in-law's arm and her just sobbing with joy. I remember that. I remember uh, watching our friends parade down the aisle in pairs. Uh, one of them would eventually pass out in the middle of the ceremony. That was awesome. Um, I, I remember then when the doors closed and everybody rising to their feet. And I knew that that moment I'd been waiting for, you know, was, was finally here. And I remember I could hear my heartbeat just so loud. And then I remember, you know, the doors open. I, like, all the air in my lungs just disappeared instantly. My shoulders threw down, my, my head dropped. And I remember my friend and pastor, uh, Paul Savino, putting his hand on my shoulder and saying, Cody, look at your bride. And as you can imagine, I cried, yes. Uh, no shock to anybody. I absolutely lost it. I was able to see her a little bit. That picture's a little blurry. Um, I'll never forget that day. It's been about 17 years since then, and my wife and I, we have experienced uh, just the scratching of the surface of just the, the wonder that marriage is. We have found marriage, like many of you who are married, um, to be both precious and unique, complex and challenging, incredibly beautiful. And yet I would also add this word to describe marriage. It's also temporary. And here's what I wanna do today as we conclude our Family Matters series. This is the last week we're gonna be walking through this series. We're gonna start First John next week. I wanna talk about marriage and I wanna do two things because on one hand, what I want to do with marriage today is to recapture the glory of marriage. There has never been a culture or a generation that held a high enough view of marriage. And that's particularly true now in an age of rising divorce rates and kind of this take it or leave it attitude toward marriage that is pervasive in our culture. 
And I don't want to just talk about like the marriages out there. Like I'm talking about like, like our marriages, like, like what's happening in here, because I think the greatest threat to the marriages in this room is not divorce. I think it's apathy. A settling for kind of a roommate status in marriage rather than the glory and the vision that God had for marriage when he created it and called you into it. So on one hand, I wanna recapture the glory of marriage. And at the other thing, at the other hand, like also speak about marriage for the thing that it is. A momentary gift. A flashing arrow that is pointing to something better. So if you're single in the room, uh, don't tune me out quite yet. I'm, I'm gonna try to do my best though. I, I know when we start talking about marriage, like all the people that are single in the room or like, especially all like the 13 year olds that think girls have like cooties or boys have cooties and stuff. Like I'm gonna try to do my best of whether you are the 13 year old in the room, you're, you're single and beginning to wonder if like marriage is ever in the cards for you. Um, if you even have been married at one point and have had to walk through the pain of losing that spouse and now are a widow or widower, or if you find yourself today in a spot where you are discouraged, separated, maybe even divorced. I'm not trying to overpromise and underdeliver here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try, because there could be a thousand sermons I could give here on marriage. I'm gonna try to, to drop some nuggets for everybody in the crowd today, okay? So stay with me. But here's what I wanna do. Our Bibles actually begin with a wedding. They end with a wedding. And our Bibles talk about marriage all throughout the pages. So what I wanna do is actually like walk from the front cover of your Bible to the back cover of your Bible today, talking about marriage. So grab your Bibles and join me in Genesis 2. Opening pages of our Bibles here. Genesis 2 verse 18 specifically is where I wanna go. And this verse should be pretty familiar to you. This is now the third time we've referenced this verse. That wasn't planned, uh, but this is now the third time we've referenced this verse within our Family Matters series. This is what Genesis 2.18 says. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. Okay, understand this, that seven times prior to Genesis 2.18, God has looked at everything that he has made or what's right in front of him and said, it's good. Seven times he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And even one time he says, it's very good. And this is the first, like 49 verses into our Bible, this is the first not good statement. This is meant to catch our attention. There is a legitimate need that is hardwired into each of us for companionship. A companionship that God alone cannot fill. That's what Genesis 2.18 is telling us here. It's part of our created design. You can go back to Genesis 1:26 when God said, let us make man in our image. You hear the us and the our, the, the plural in there. When God creates mankind in his image, he embeds a part of himself into us. And one of the parts of himself is that God is community personified. He is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three in one, the Holy Trinity eternally existing in joyful relationship with each other, he delights in community. And when he creates us, he creates us with this delight, this hunger for, this need for, this craving for community. 
That's why when somebody says, I'm better off on my own, I actually don't believe them. I'm like, that's not strength, that's brokenness. Uh, you've heard me say some of this stuff before because we talk about the importance of community a lot. Now, I'll make this abundantly clear. God can fulfill this need in a variety of ways. He can fill this need through friends, family, your church. But when God calls you into marriage and gives you the gift of that companionship, it is a tremendous gift, a tremendous gift. One that we can say to the other, this is my beloved and my beloved is mine. We are receiving a tremendous gift. So two things I want you to get out of Genesis 2.18, that one, if you are single, whether you're 17 or 57, and you desire marriage, know that that is a good desire. God can meet your desire in a variety of ways, but that desire to be married is not evil. It's actually good. And second, that marriage was God's idea and one of his good gifts to us. So take note of those two things, but I also wanna draw your attention to one more thing that I want you to notice here in Genesis 2.18. And there's two words here. If you're taking notes, understand this. Marriage is about complementing, not completing. Marriage is about complementing, not completing. I know it sounds romantic to steal that like Jerry Maguire line, you know, Tom Cruise, like, and look at somebody you love and go, you complete me. Uh, theologically, though, that's bad. That's not, that's not the, the point here. Eve was never created to complete Adam. Only God can complete somebody. But Eve was given to complement Adam. We see in verse 18, right? It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. Literally, that phrase, corresponding to him, means opposite to him. Like two pieces of a puzzle, they actually fit together because they're not the same. They're different. God created Eve to complement Adam, to help him serve and love the Lord in ways that he could not on his own. And so their marriage gets off to a great start. And then sadly, when sin enters the picture, there's a sad change that takes place in their marriage. And all of a sudden, their marriage is now full of blame shifting and finger pointing and things like that. Anyone who's ever been married knows that this is one of the great challenges of marriage. The otherness, the differentness of your spouse. Like one of the great challenges of marriage is that often the otherness or the differentness of your spouse becomes a source of bitterness, and frustration, rather than a source of delight. Married people, be honest. How many of you have ever in the midst of conflict with your spouse thought to yourself, maybe even said it out loud, that you wish you had married yourself? Which is a really weird concept, right? But like, we know what we like, we know what we want, we know what we need, like we got all this stuff. Like if I just married myself, I'd probably be happier. Happier maybe, more sinful definitely. <laughs> God gave my wife to me as a gift and she's different than me and he gave her to me purposely to counteract me, to compliment me. But often those differences, that otherness becomes sources of bitterness rather than sources of delight. 
as I, I know, again, that we're not all coming from the same place, so don't, don't hear what I'm not saying here. Like, I'm not giving an excuse for your spouse's sin, and I'm not encouraging, if you're single in the room, to be like, well, if I'm a Christian, then I should marry a non-Christian. That would really be different. It's like, I'm not encouraging that. I'm simply trying to encourage those who are in the room that are married. You got two Christians, two believers together in marriage who are in conflict right now. And the issue, though you haven't been able to see it to this point, is not about right and wrong. It's just about different. And I'm asking for you to repent and to delight in the complementary, contrasting nature of your spouse and praise God that they are not exactly like you and to learn to embrace them. Complimenting, not completing. So what Genesis 2.18 teaches us, just to recap, is that our desire for marriage is good, God's gift of marriage is good, and our complimenting, contrasting spouse is good. So I said the Bible starts with a wedding, ends with a wedding, and in between, there's a lot of passages about marriage. I'm gonna grab the longest section in scripture that speaks to marriage and take us to Ephesians 5 now. So go to Ephesians 5. I'm gonna pick up in verse 21. God being the creator of marriage, the inventor of marriage, he gives us lovingly an instruction manual for marriage, right? If you want a flourishing marriage, here's the instruction manual. And I would say Ephesians 5 is a great landing spot. I'm gonna pick up in verse 21 because this verse kind of sets the tone for the whole section that follows. Verse 21 says this, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. That verse kind of sets up what flows from here as Paul will begin addressing husbands and wives, children and parents, servants and masters, this umbrella command to submit to one another out of fear of Christ kind of sits over top of all of this whole section. This umbrella command that is telling us that we should labor to outdo one another, to lay aside our rights for the flourishing of the other person. Like the Christian life is meant to be kind of this game of limbo. That's all about like who can lay down themselves the furthest for the other person's gain. And we don't do this because they deserve it. We do it because Christ commands it. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. So how does that play out in marriage? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but he provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each of you is to love his wife as himself, 
and the wife is to respect her husband. Winston Churchill once said that all the greatest concepts are fundamentally simple and many of them can be expressed in a single word. So it is with God's design and instruction for marriage and the spouse in marriage. Take all of this and summarize it into one word for each spouse. Husbands, love. Wives, submit. Now, just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. In some ways, it would have been easier for Paul to lay out some more detail here. Like, all right, um, wives, your job is to bathe the kids, uh, buy the groceries, and rake the leaves. Husbands, your job is to mow the lawn, change the oil, and manage the budget. You know, like, we're kind of taskless people. Uh, we love, like, absolute clarity. Um, he stays above that. God's design, because he's good, we know that his design is good and is for our flourishing. And so everything that we have here is an expression of God's love for us when he calls us as men to love and wives to submit. And in his love for us, he gives us very simple job descriptions, all into one word. And men, because the majority of this text is speaking to us, uh, I wanna start by speaking to the men. So men, hear me on this one. Even if you're not married, maybe someday in the cards, take these things. I wanna go back to verse 25 and reread it, gentlemen, and put one verse in your mind. Husbands, love your wives, and if you've got a pen, underline these two words. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The original Greek behind that word love, it's not eros, which would be a sexually motivated love, and it's not phileos. It's not a affectionate, strongly affectionate love. The word there, love, in Greek is agape, which means God-like love. Gents, let me ask you, when you think about the love of God, just reflecting on the gospel here just a minute ago and singing, when you think about the love of God, what words come to mind? Patient, enduring, sacrificial, right? Not, not hinged on anything that I do, it's not conditional. Do those same words describe the way that you love your wife? See, here's the, the beauty and challenge of this simple command to us is that when the love of Jesus is the standard, you know, like when that's the bar that we're held against, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, there's no day that we ever wake up and feel like mission accomplished. You like roll out of bed and be like, hey, I loved you enough yesterday. Like, I'm, I'm good for a while, right? You can't do that when the call is to love your wife just as Christ loved the church. Man, I know you love clarity. I'm gonna try to give it to you here. Uh, just some categories I'd put in your minds when you think about how to love your wife. I put two words particularly in your mind, protection and provision. I see that in the text here because he says, right, protection that a husband is to lay down his wife, his life for his wife. 
to give up himself. Verse 25, I see protection because I, or provision, I see that because in verse 29, he says he provides and he cares for her. And actually one of the exercises I'll do in like premarital counseling in my office is that I'll have the man draw like an XY chart or like it's got like four quadrants. You know, there's two columns and there's two rows. And I'll put across the top, physical and spiritual, and then on the side, protection and provision. And I'll say, as you enter into marriage as a husband, these are four things that you're responsible towards your bride. How are you going to do that? What will it look like for you to physically provide for your wife and protect your wife and spiritually provide for your wife and protect your wife? Start thinking through those categories, men. <clears throat> I'm curious if you could figure this out then, that when all of a sudden a couple ends up in my office in conflict, maybe on the brink of divorce, which of those categories do you think are most often being neglected by the husband in that relationship? I'll give you a little hint. It's not the physical side. And it often leads to so much confusion. He's sitting there and he'll go, I don't know what she's so angry about. I work my butt off to put food on the table. And she's just weeping because what she's crying out for, she's not wanting a nicer car. She's wanting a husband who will lead and love her as Christ does for the church. She's looking for a spiritual leader and lover. And often in our households, way too many households, the wife is the primarily like spiritual one, the religious one, the weight bearer for all things for the family when it comes to church, relationship with Christ. Men, our call is for something better than that. One of my favorite quotes regarding love, and I've shared this with you before, it's been a couple years now, is this quote by John Piper. It says that love is laboring and suffering if necessary to enthrall. If that word doesn't land for you, think of like captivate, right? But love is laboring and suffering to enthrall someone with what will make them eternally and infinitely happy. That's Christ. Erotic love is the type of love where the two are together, but they're staring at each other. But true love, enduring love, agape love, is side-by-side -side love where both of our eyes are fixed on the same thing. Gentlemen, if you want to love your wife, pursue her, provide for her, protect her in ways that help her put her eyes on Jesus and not just on you, that she could see the love of Christ in you every day. That's what true love is for your bride, to labor and to suffer if necessary, to captivate her with what will make her eternally and infinitely happy. It's not you, it's Jesus. But let her see Jesus in you. Women, I'm, I'm curious now, if your husband loved you like that, how would verse 22 land when you see the word submit? To submit, I mean, it's always hard. We're rebellious people by nature, you know? 
But submission is always easiest when the person that we're submitting to loves us more than we love ourselves. But here's the additional thing, and I'm saying this both to the husbands and to the wives. Unfortunately for us, neither one of these commands to love or to submit are conditional. Meaning that husbands, you should love your wives so long as she's submitting to you, or that wives, that you should submit to your husbands so long as they love you. I had a friend once say this. He's like, yeah, when both sides are doing their job in an Ephesians 5 marriage, it's fun. When only one side is doing their job, that marriage is still functional. It's just not fun, but it is still functional. But wives, as I turn the attention now to speak to you and to look at verse 22, I wanna say this at the forefront because again, I know there's a wide variety of stories in the room. And I have seen these verses misused to oppress women and to provide permission for rebellion. Let me just say here real quickly what submission is not, okay? Submission is not oppression. It's not slavery. It's not devaluing. It's not absolute silence. It's not a right for someone else to abuse. And if that is happening in your relationship, this is a safe place for you to talk to someone and we will fight for you and defend you. This word submission here, when you go to the original Greek, it's, it's not a submission that's taken, that's forced. It's a submission that's willingly given up. Like it's, it's, a, it's a willful thing. It's given, not taken. Submission literally means, you're gonna laugh at this because you're gonna be like, okay, like that could have thought of that definition. Submission means to submit yourself to the mission of somebody else. And I wanna, I wanna draw that out just a bit, that definition, because... Um, if ladies in the room, the single ladies in the room, if you're wanting like the best dating advice I could give you, and this is coming secondhand. Jake Herring shared this with me. I thought that was great. Jake, Jake, you got this from Todd Van Voorst, right? So we're like going back to the source on that one. But ladies, if submission is submitting yourself to the mission of somebody else, here's the number one question you should be asking yourself if you're in a dating relationship with somebody contemplating marriage. Ready? What is the mission of their life? What is the mission of their life? That's the number one question you should ask yourself. And is that a mission you want to submit yourself to? I don't, I don't care so much. Like, you're like, well, I like their face or they got great humor. I go, what's their mission? And is that a mission you want to give yourself to? If you want me to get real practical, ladies, now speaking to, to all the women in the room, what does submission look like? I think if I was to give you two words, I said to the guys, protection and provision in those two categories of physical and spiritual. For the ladies, I'd give you two words, respect and support. I get respect because it's there in verse 33 when he gets to the end of this, Paul gets into this, and I grab support because I think that's the best word to define how Eve was to come alongside Adam to compliment him in ways, to help him to serve and love the Lord in ways he couldn't on his own. Ladies, within submission, respect 
your husband. Seek to build him up, honor him, encourage him, affirm him, support him. It's this inclination to trust and to follow. Right? That doesn't mean that you don't have an opinion, you don't express it, but support means that you put wind in your husband's sails rather than shipwreck him when he attempts to lead. An example of this from our marriage, gosh, this goes back years ago. I mean, I think maybe a decade ago. Um, a real awful moment in my responsibilities in leading our family as a husband. I remember something happened, I think with Jacoby, that got me so angry. And, uh, you know, they, they say, you know, the Ted Tripp's book or Paul Tripp's book on parenting, like don't discipline out of anger, which I don't know how to do that. Like, I don't know how to not discipline without anger. But I, this time was particularly bad. And I, I was just fuming mad, let my child know that, that I was disappointed, I was angry, and afterward felt an overwhelming wave of shame, and rightly so. And I remember we were headed toward the dinner table and uh, it wasn't always customary for me to like pray for the family. We typically like pass the torch, have different people pray, but I sat down at the table feeling absolutely horrible about how I'd been serving our family as, as a husband. And, uh, and Stace looked at me and she said, hey, would you pray for us? And I, I looked right back at her in full transparency and said, I don't want to, I don't deserve it. And I remember the word she spoke back was probably the most powerful phrase she's ever spoken in our marriage. And she just looked back at me and she said, I want you to lead. I can't tell you what would have happened in our marriage if at that point, instead of saying, I want you to lead, she would have said, you failed us. You don't deserve to lead. But there was so much grace and challenge in her words, right? Grace, like to communicate, like, hey, our family's not demanding perfection of you. But challenge in the sense of, but well, we are expecting and desiring for you to lead us. And I repented in that moment to the family. I owned my mistake, apologized to my son. I prayed for us. That was a key moment for us. I think that would be one of the best examples from our own marriage of what it looks like to respect and support your husband, even in the midst of failure. I could say a lot more. Gosh, there's been books upon books written about this stuff, but if I could recommend a few books, John Piper's uh, Momentary Marriage book is incredible. Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, which we use for our Marriage 101 class, Gospel Center Marriage class, is fantastic. Uh, ladies in particular, if you're curious about like this topic of submission and you're like, oh, wow, that, that really hit me out of left field today. Uh, we actually have a podcast entitled Submit What? Uh, episode 27 on the Running Deep podcast. You can check that out. Just go to our website, check that out and, and hear that kind of unpacked a little bit longer. But as I said, our Bibles begin with a wedding, talks about marriage throughout, and then ends with a wedding. Now I wanna take you to the back pages of your Bible, to Revelation 19. Because as quickly as our wedding day passed, our marriage is gonna be over. That's how life is. In the blink of an eye, 
like the passing of a vapor, we will pass from this earth. And because of our faith, our shared faith in Jesus Christ, one day my wife and I will stand before Jesus in so much glory and brilliance, it will make our first wedding day clothes, her dress and my tux, as amazing as she looked, it will look like rags compared to what we're dressed in that day. And speaking of that day, John writes in Revelation 19, verse six, said, then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunders saying, hallelujah, because the Lord God, the almighty reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear bright and pure for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. And I wanna skip forward to Revelation 21 as he picks up on the wedding scene again. Revelation 21 then, 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down of heaven from God prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. And he also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. If you have eyes for it, there's a lot of symbolism within a wedding day ceremony. The white dress that you see on the bride to represent the righteousness of the bride of Christ that he purchased for her on the cross and gave to her by faith, her faith and by grace. You see a couple that is to this point experienced a level of relationship that is amazing, but yet they have no idea. It's just the tip of the iceberg. There's the joy before them of greater relationship. That too is symbolic. And there's the groom. There's the groom at the front of the room waiting behind closed doors, waiting for those doors to fly open and for his bride to come to be with him. It's a flashing arrow, guys. The wedding day is a momentary gift and a flashing arrow pointing to something greater. That just like that groom is sitting at the front of the room, cannot wait to be united with his wife. So right now, Jesus stands kind of figuratively behind closed doors, waiting for them to fly open for him to be united with his bride forever. If you have eyes to see it, Everything in the wedding day is symbolic. The same is true for your marriage. Marriage, like a wedding day, is a momentary gift and a flashing arrow pointing to something greater. That's why Paul writes in the midst of all these instructions about husbands and wives and all that. He's like, hey, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. I heard a question once asked, what if 
marriage had never existed. What if the greatest that we could ever experience with a human relationship was like a serial monogamous relationship, essentially a relationship that's like, hey, I'm committed to you and I'm committed to love you so long as like we both feel that way towards each other. And if any of us like has our affections changed, we'll just step out. Like what if that was the greatest form of relationship we had in this world and not marriage? What would we lose? Church, what we would lose is marriage is the only thing we have in this world that gives us just a small taste of what agape covenantal love is like. Covenantal love that is not built on like, oh, I, I love you so long as the sex is good. Or like, I love you so long as I find you attractive. Or I love you so long as like the kids are in the house. Or I love you so long as like I feel that way, but if my affections change. Or like, I love you so long as like you deserve it. Like covenantal love, agape love that says, I love you because I promise to love you and promise I would never remove my affections from you regardless what you did. Marriage was created by God to give the world just a small taste of God's love for us, that unconditional agape covenantal love. It's why he cares about our marriages so much. One of the things that marks our church family is a passion to see people one to Jesus. I love that, don't change. But add this to your mind. What if the most missional thing you could do to see people one to Jesus is to have a flourishing marriage? I do believe that would be the most missional, evangelistic thing we could do as a church family, to point to Christ, that people could see in us what love looks like, what joyful submission looks like, that they could look at that and start connecting the dots and go, man, if that's just, if that's just like a foretaste or a small taste of something greater, I want that. That's what our marriages were meant to do. My prayer for this sermon this morning is that whether you are young in marriage or old in marriage, that today would be like a vow renewal ceremony for you that at your dinner tables today, you would sit there, you would look at your bride, men, and wives, you'd look at your husbands, and there would be confession, repentance, apologies, and commitment to a better marriage. And I'm not talking about just your marriage. When I talk about commitment to a better marriage, I'm talking about Christ who put his ring on your finger first, who called you to himself and the marriage that will last forever and ever. Because those in the room that have experienced the pain of looking at their loved one in a casket will tell you, marriage is a fleeting gift, a momentary joy. And in that moment, if I'm still alive, I wanna be able to look at my bride in the casket and to know that I was a faithful steward of her soul. but I also will hold on to the joy as much as that day will be a pain for me, the joy that even the greatest day of our marriage is nothing in comparison 
to the glory that awaits us in Christ. And I do believe that the key to a joy-filled and flourishing marriage is found in fixing your eyes on that day and laboring to help one another keep it there every day of your life and of your marriage. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, such a massive topic and my feeble words and my weak voice. And yet, Jesus, I lay all of these things, the truth that you've brought to us today, my heart motives behind it. I put it all before you and ask for your spirit to move and to do the work that no man, no person can do themselves to bring about real deep conviction in our hearts, to bring about a brokenness over sin that has long been harbored, pride that has been allowed to grow way too big that it has even blinded us to our own selves, for us to move past words like attraction towards something greater like covenant. husbands to look at their wives and wives look at their husbands, for young men and women who are not yet married, for those who have been married and have lost love on looking back, or for those that are in the midst of struggle, for us all to look at marriage with different eyes, new vision, a new heart, new convictions, to see it, yes, in all of its glory, yet not idolize the gift over the giver to labor for the beauty that you have for us in marriage, God, for your glory and for your name. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.